Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, good to be here worshiping this morning. Uh, We are now coming into a new part of our series. We just wrapped up Kings and Kingdoms where we looked at the kings of Israel, uh, Saul, David, Solomon, uh, and then the, the kingdom being split. Uh, we're going to begin our series looking at the prophets called Prepare the Way. So this week and the next eight weeks, uh, we will be going through the prophets. Now, when you think about the prophets, as you look at how we break it up in English, there's the major prophets and the minor prophets. The major prophets just means that the books are longer. That's all it really means. And minor prophets means that the books are shorter. And then in nine weeks, we'll get to the New Testament. So I'm excited to dive into the gospel uh, the Gospels in nine weeks. Today we're going to be looking at the book of Jonah. And Jonah is considered a minor prophet because it's just four short chapters. In fact, there's less verses in those four chapters than a lot of the chapters in the New Testament that we've done as we went through Luke. So let's go before the Lord in prayer and we'll dive into this book. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so thankful that you're so gracious and kind and and merciful, that you're slow to anger and that you are abounding in love. And Lord, as we dive into this narrative today, I just pray that you'll challenge us. Lord, the the book of of Jonah is, is written to cause us to ask questions, to cause us to reflect on our own life. So I pray that we'll do that today. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, the book of Jonah holds a very special place in my heart when I was 12 years old. I was at a church and the pastor preached on Jonah and I rededicated my life as a 12-year-old to Jesus Christ. And for many of you, it may be a really familiar book. And as you're reading through, uh, maybe you're reading through the Kings and it feels like, man, I don't know what's going on. And then you get to Jonah and you're like, ah, okay, I know this one. I've read this one. And usually when you think of Jonah, you think of Jonah and the... Whale, which it doesn't really say whale, it says a great fish, but oftentimes it's a, it's a children's story and, and it's a very popular story. But what is the story of Jonah really about? Is the story of Jonah about a fish? Well, the word fish is only mentioned five times. Is it about this great city of Nineveh? Well, Nineveh is only mentioned nine times. Is it about Jonah, the, the prophet that ran away? Well, Jonah is mentioned 18 times. Or it is about God. God is mentioned 38 times in the book of Jonah. We've been saying as we go through the the book of Scriptures, as we go through God's Word, that ultimately all these little stories about, about Jonah, about Abraham, about Isaac, about Jacob, about all these different people are really telling one grand narrative of God and, and who He is and how He relates to His people. And Jonah is a unique prophet. It's a unique prophecy. As you read through the major and the minor prophets, you notice they're filled with prophecy. That's part of why they're called prophets. But the story of Jonah is actually a story. It's written in the same kind of historical narrative way that the kings are written. But at the same time, people have asked the question, is this a legitimate, real story? In fact, for centuries, people have argued this. And some uh, scholars that we would greatly respect, like, like Martin Luther, would say that Jonah was a parable. It was written as a parable. It, it isn't necessarily a historical account. Whereas others, like John Calvin, would say that it is a historical account. But no matter where people land on that, what we find is that 
the, the message that they say Jonah teaches is the same. But I want to share with you why I believe this is a historical account, that, that Jonah actually did go into the water, that a big fish actually did swallow him up. First, um, it doesn't read like other parables in the Bible. When you read parables in the Bible, they're usually a very simple storyline. This is a very complex storyline with, with lots of details throughout the whole story. Most parables are short. Jonah, even though it's a short book, would be by far the longest parable in all of the Scriptures, if that is what it was. We know that Jonah is a real character. In 2 Kings 14.25, it says, He, speaking of Jehoash, king of Israel, was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Labo Hamath to the Dead Sea, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer, which is in Galilee. So he's a real historical character. Jesus seems to treat Jonah as a real historical figure. In Matthew 12, Jesus said, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. That's what the religious people were doing. But none will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. And lastly, it's a really simple reason. The main reason that people say, well, this must be a parable and not a true story, is because people don't live in a fish for three days. And I go, yeah, it's not typical, but that's why it's a miracle. So when you read Genesis 1-1, the Bible starts with something profound. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God spoke, and everything that exists came into existence. As we've read through the Bible, we've read about the plagues that God caused in Egypt. In our readings each week, we've seen the Red Sea parted. We've seen the Jericho walls fall. We've seen Elijah called on fire from heaven. We've seen Elisha heal a paralytic. The Bible is full of God doing amazing and astounding things. And fast forward and we get to the New Testament. And Jesus performs miracle after miracle after miracle. The greatest of which was rising from the dead. Three days later, he uses Jonah as this example. So I have confidence that what we're reading today is a historical account. But even though I think it's historical, historical, I'm creating new words, historical, I do think it's a parable. That's called a historical, a historical parable. New thing. Uh, In the sense that what it teaches us, Jonah Jonah teaches us about how we relate to God and our relationship with God, and it has a lot to learn. And before we dive into it, have you ever ran away from something? Um, I don't know how many of you are golfers, and I don't know how many of you are bad golfers, because that's, that's me. Um, and when I was, uh, I don't, my parents are going to be listening to this, and they've probably never heard this story. I always get embarrassed when I do this. But uh, we would go over to the, the, the elementary school right by our house, and we would hit golf balls. And so... I, I, I would line up facing far away from any of the houses, and I'd hit the golf ball, and I never came close to hitting the golf ball, but one, getting the house. But one time, I, I hit a slice directly right, and it bounced off the, the elementary school, over a fence, into a garage, and we heard punk, 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 we heard things falling. 
And so we immediately did what any like 12-year-old kid would do instead of being adults and, and going and apologizing and finding out what's wrong. We ran. We just ran and hid. And we went around the back way and went through. And I, need to, I don't know that neighbor, but I need to go give him some money. If I broke something now, uh, now I'm feeling convicted. But, but we, we were scared and we ran. And so today we're going to hear a story of someone who, who is told to do something by God and decides, I need to go the opposite way. Open your Bibles to Jonah 1. It will be on the screen there as well. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, this call, the word of the Lord came to, is the classic call that we see for prophets. It's the same exact way that God called Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and others. God is calling Jonah to do something specific. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Nineveh is a great city. A a few years after this happened, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, made Nineveh the capital of Assyria, and it became the most powerful city in the ancient Near East. In the book of Jonah, it's called a great city four times. It's a huge city. In chapter 4, we learn that it would take three days to journey from one side of the city to the other side of the city. The city of Nineveh was rediscovered after more than 2,500 years of obscurity. And many scholars believe it was the largest city in the world at the time of its demise when it finally was crashed, when the Babylonians came in. Now, who are the Assyrians? We talked about them last week. They were the sworn enemy of the Israelites. And they were very brutal. In fact, they were known for torturing uh, enemies of war. And they would bring them in. And, and some of the history, history I'm making up words, history, <laughs> shows that they would actually like fillet people, take people's skin off, de-skin people as a form of torture. They were very wicked. They were hated by the Israelites, and they would eventually conquer the Israelites in 722, about 30 or 40 years after this story. So Jonah is told to go and to go to Nineveh and call it against it because their evil had risen up. God had heard about their evil, and God was going to bring judgment. Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down. You'll see this, this, this phrase again and again, down, down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let's look at this map. So um, Jonah is a little bit north of Joppa, most likely in the northern kingdom. And so he headed down to Joppa, which was a, a place to, to get a ship. And he goes to literally the further, furthest most part of the earth. They, did, they hadn't explored to North America. So this would have been, in Jonah's mind, he's thinking, where is the farthest place I can go away from God's presence? And he decides to get on a boat to go to Spain, the furthest place away that he could possibly go. He said, I want to start a nonprofit organization. I don't want to be a prophet anymore. I'm going to leave and I'm going to just rescind my my role as a prophet and and go to and go work at a chick-fil-a i don't know figure something out once i get to tarshish i'm going to go away and start something new and so he gets on this boat and it says he tries to go away from the presence of the lord now can you get away from the presence of the lord no he should know better he's a prophet but he says nope non-profit verse four 
But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship and into the sea to lighten it for him. God is bringing this great storm. But Jonah had gone down, there's that phrase again, into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Now, I, I can't imagine in the middle of this great storm being fast asleep, but maybe as soon as he heard from the Lord, he headed down. He didn't, he didn't take any naps or anything. He took a NyQuil before getting into the boat. Something was going on and he's fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots so that we may know whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and lots fell on Jonah. There's different ways they do this. The typical way is they would have all these different uh, size um, sticks and one would be shorter, but you'd, you'd hold it out and you could see they all looked like the same length and everybody would take one and the person with the shorter stick would be the one that was the cause of it. We actually see God using this uh, multiple times throughout the Scriptures. But verse 8, Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and what people are you? Why, Why is this happening to us? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. And anytime you see in the Scripture, Lord capitalized, that's the Hebrew name Yahweh. Now, I will say there are times when I copy and paste every time. It, it makes it small letters, so every week I have to go in and recapitalize them. So if you ever see it not capitalized, just the first letter capitalized, I'm sorry I missed it. But when you read your Scriptures, you'll see those four letters capitalized. That means Yahweh. So I am a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. Why? Because they had heard about Yahweh. They'd heard about the things He had done. And they said to Him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that He was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because He had told them. They're afraid. Moses fulfill, or Moses, Jonah fulfills his calling and says, Look, I am a Hebrew and I follow Yahweh. And that's why... This is happening. Then they said to him, verse 11, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. That means rocky and wavy. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. I know it is better for me that this great tempest has come, is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah's saying, Look, it's my fault. And, and maybe somehow he had a word from the Lord as a prophet that said, If you throw me overboard... It'll go quiet. That's all you got to do. And these are good men. So nevertheless, the men rode harder to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea had grown more and more tempestuous against them. They tried to get back. They tried to save them. Verse 14, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, here they're calling out to Yahweh, O Yahweh, let us not perish from this man's life, and lay not on us the innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done it as you have pleased, as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So in their fear, they realized they can't. They're gonna be shipwrecked if they don't do something. They throw Jonah overboard, splash, calm. And they immediately fear the Lord 
and they worship Him. In Jonah's running, God used Jonah to save a whole ship of people to put their faith and trust in Yahweh. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. When a man catches a fish, it's not big news. When a fish catches a man, it's pretty big news. There are two species of Mediterranean fish that could swallow a man whole, the white shark and a sperm whale. In fact, there's been historical accounts of white sharks uh, swallowing men and then them being captured. Uh, And so we have potentially these type of fish that could swallow a man. Uh, Why would God use a fish? Well, in Assyria, one of the main gods was Dagon. He was the fish god. He was represented by all these different ways. Some looked like a merman, kind of half fish, a half man. Some had a fish with a man coming out of the fish. All different ways, Dagon was the fish god. We see it all throughout the scriptures when describing the uh, Philistines. And when we did archaeology all throughout Nineveh, we found images of Dagon in palaces and temples. And so in the Journal of Biblical Literature, Orientalist Henry Clay Trumpel observes, What better heralding as a divinely sent messenger to Nineveh could Jonah have had than to be thrown up out of the mouth of a great fish and the presence of witnesses, say, on the coast of Phoenicia, where the fish god was the favorite object of worship? Such an incident would have inevitably aroused the mercurial nature of Oriental observers so that a multitude would be ready to follow the seemingly new avatar of the fish god, proclaiming the story of his uprising from the sea as he went on his mission to the city where the fish god had its very center of worship. In more plain terms, if you are a person that lives in Nineveh and hear about this guy who was spit out by fish, you would want to listen to what he had to say. Jesus called Jonah a sign to Nineveh. That when Jonah went, it was a sign to Nineveh. Some scholars believe that because of being in the, in the fish for three days and the acid of the fish, that it would have changed the pigmentation of his skin. It would have been lighter, maybe changed his hair a little bit, so that even his presence, people would have looked at him and go, what was up with that guy? And then as he told the story, they would be amazed. So before we dive into chapter 2, I want to reorient your brain a little bit because... Our brains are interesting things. What our brains do is that when we hear something, we try to make reference to our brain catalogs, all the information that exists, and we try to make a reference point in our brain to understand what's happening. So with that in mind, where have you seen someone inside a fish? For most of us, probably Pinocchio, right? That's probably our only reference. So in your mind, when you think of a great fish and Jonah in the fish, you immediately go back to Pinocchio. And the, and the, whole, uh, the, 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 the whole boat was in, in the whale's belly, and then Pinocchio goes in, and, and they want to get out. So Pinocchio starts a fire, so the whale will sneeze, and then they, and then they get on the raft. And, and all the little kids are like, we've never seen Pinocchio because that's a really old movie. But then they get out of the whale through the raft. But in reality... He probably would have no room to move. He definitely wouldn't have had materials to start a fire. He would have been stuck in there, probably unable to move. If you've ever been to a fish market and and smelled the smell of a fish market on a summer day, it's awful. He's surrounded by dead fish, decaying fish. It would have been, in my mind, probably the three worst days that anybody could experience. But... In the midst of that, Jonah prays a prayer of thanks. 
Why? Because he was drowning and God saved him. And he knew that God sent the fish. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head and the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. We often think of Jonah at the top of the sea struggling and this, and this whale coming out and, poof, and grabbing him and going down. But no, Jonah sank to the bottom. He was being surrounded by, by the weeds and, and, and engulfed by the mountains. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, he's drowning as he thinks he's about to die. I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the theme of this book. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. I can just imagine, you know, you're in Phoenicia, you're on vacation, you're at the beach. This uh, fish comes up, and then there comes Jonah. What in the world? You know, I've seen some weird things on the beach, but that would by far take the cake. So chapter 3, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God's emphasizing, look, I, I came to you once, you didn't obey. Here's this second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. This time he listens. According to the word of the Lord, he did what the Lord told him to do. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. Then he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's not a city where he can just go to the gates. He has to travel a whole day's worth into the city before he starts proclaiming maybe the shortest sermon ever. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now it's probable that he probably told the story of what happened to him because he was considered a sign unto Nineveh. So they probably learned about that. But it says in verse 5, people responded right away. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and, and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and of his nobles. Let neither man nor beast Herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from his violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The whole city responds in repentance. This is the biggest revival ever. 120,000 people responding to this. 
In Assyrian records, we see that on June 15, 763, there was a solar eclipse that was followed by floods and famine. And so probably after that event, after the floods, after the famine, here comes Jonah and the, God had been preparing their hearts and they hear the word of Jonah and they repent and they, they fall down and they, and they fast. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. We've seen a number of times as we've been reading through the narrative this picture of God relenting. I'm so thankful that God does. So many times I've, I've messed up. I've made mistakes. I've, I've turned to my own ways. And here, these wicked people that deserve nothing from the Lord other than judgment, when they realized who God was, they repented and they fasted and they confessed their sins. And they called on God's mercy, and God was gracious, and God was merciful. We serve a gracious and merciful God. Chapter 4, But to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew. Listen, he, he, he makes an accusation of, of God, but listen to his accusation. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. That's why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. That's why he fled. It wasn't because he was afraid that they would murder him. It wasn't because he was afraid because they were wicked. It was he was afraid that God would relent because he knew God's character, that God is gracious and compassionate. He had seen it time and time again while Jonah was prophesying in the northern kingdom. During that time, God in his graciousness had relented and allowed the northern kingdom of Israel to expand and to grow. And Jonah had seen God's graciousness and compassion with the Israelite people who did not deserve it. And he was like, I didn't want to go because I knew you would do this, God. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? The obvious answer is no. But sometimes we get upset with God for the weirdest reasons. When God doesn't bring punishment on people that we think deserve it, we think, aren't you just, God? But at the same time, God is just and should be bringing punishment on us, and yet He doesn't. Verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at the place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. So he goes out, sets up a shelter, and waits. Maybe God will actually bring punishment. Let me wait till these 30 days and we'll find out maybe God will bring punishment. Maybe their repentance is not true. Maybe they're just doing this because they're fearful of judgment and then they're going to turn away a couple days later. Maybe they're going to get tired of fasting. Verse 6, And the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up to go over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Jonah seems so dramatic. This is the worst. 
I have no shade. You're going to save Nineveh. It's just better if I die. Verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? No. It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. It's my plant, God. Why'd you do this? I have a right to be angry. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? And I just think that means they don't understand morality. I don't think it's meaning 120,000 kids, as some would say. And also many animals. Jonah feels justified. I should be angry. But God says, nope. You shouldn't. And God asks a question. See, Jonah was more concerned about the plant than he was about the people. He was more concerned about the shade than people getting saved. Jonah cared about his comfort more than he cared about the salvation of an entire city. And then the story just ends abruptly. There's no conclusion. We don't know what happened to Jonah. It ends with this question. Shouldn't God care about these 120,000 people and these animals? People that He's created. People that He has put onto this earth. And the answer is yes. So because Jonah ends on a question, I think, and throughout this book we have multiple questions, I want to end with three questions. Three questions that I believe the texts are asking us today. The first one is this. Are you... Running from God. Are you running from God? We know it's useless to do so. Psalm 139 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up into the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, and if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. When Jonah was given instruction by the Lord, he tried to run in the opposite direction, but the Lord was present in every step. We all tend to run away from God in some capacity. Maybe you're running away from God's commands. God has given us guidance through the Scriptures of how to live a godly life. And at times, we tend to run away from His commands, even though those commands are for our benefit. And we run away to behavioral sin and, and we seek after it. And even after we find that it leaves us empty time and time again, we still pursue it. We find ourselves empty and, and lacking satisfaction, yet we still run to gossip or anger or envy, spending all our time looking at what other people have and wishing we had it. Or lying to make ourselves look better. Or pornography or lust. Or the love of money. We, we pursue all these things, running away from God's command, hoping to find satisfaction in these other things. Or maybe we just run away from God's mission. God has called us to do something, to, to share our faith, to make disciples of all the nations to the ends of the earth. Maybe God's calling you to serve in a ministry and, and you've been resisting it. Maybe God's been calling you to give your time to something and you've been saying, no, I'm, I'm too busy. Maybe God's been calling you to give your money to something. You said, no, God, I need this money for the things I need to do. Or maybe God is even calling you to vocational ministry and you've been fighting Him. We often run away from God's mission to comfort. 
much like Jonah did. We care more about the plant than the people. We care more about the shade than who will be saved. We run away from God's relationship at times. Sometimes in our life, we still have all the outside actions of a Christian. We, we go to church, we, 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 we go to our life group, and, and uh, on the outside, everything looks good. But, but inside, we, we shut down God. We shut down God relationally. We've stopped praying. We've, we've stopped reading the Scripture. We, we, we have these outward expressions, but in our hearts, really, we've turned and hardened our heart to the Lord. Or maybe we're running away from God's forgiveness. Oftentimes when we sin, what we try to do is we try to fix it. And then we can go back to God. So, man, I've been struggling with this habitual sin, and so I'm going to do is I'm going to have two weeks or three weeks of success. And then I can go back to God and say, see, God, I'm sorry about that, but look, I'm following you now. Whereas Hebrews 4 tells us to boldly go before the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that we'll receive mercy in our time of need. We're stuck in sin. We need to run to God. Not run away from God. Sometimes we run away from proclaiming God's forgiveness to others. When we've been forgiven, we hide it. We don't tell others the story of how God has changed us. Sometimes we run away from God's people. Hebrews 10:24 tells us to consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now my concern long term is what's going to happen in the church when all this is done. Now, uh, I want to specify here that there's nothing wrong, and those that are staying home to be safe and and engaging online, you're doing a great thing, and there's nothing against that. But as things go, and and, and as you get used to just engaging online and and going online, there's going to come a time where, where maybe it just becomes way easier. And so Saturday night, you're like, well, we stayed up late, let's just skip church. And then, you know, the next week, well, you know, I want to go do this. We'll, we'll just catch church on Monday. You know, we don't need to catch. we got stuff on Sunday. And next week, well, I didn't get last week, but we'll catch up. And eventually you find yourself just not really engaging with God's people, not being in relationships. I encourage you, if you're engaging online, to find others that you can engage with, whether it's a phone call or, 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 or some other way to engage with God's people, because we're meant to live in community. And often what times is, as we withdraw from community, then we just slowly find ourselves withdrawing from the Lord. I had a, a, a couple, that, a family that came to, to Lowell while we, was, while we were there, and, and they came and I asked them, you know, what made you end up coming to Lowell. And they said, well, we were going to Ada Bible. It's a great church, great sermons, great everything. But we found is that it'd be really easy to make excuses to just go, hey, let's just stay home today. Because when we showed up, nobody knew that we were missing because it's a big church. Next thing you know, we're not going to church. We're just engaging in line. Next thing you know, we're not even engaging in line. And we just kind of lost church in our habits. And so we wanted to come to a small church where when we were gone, people would notice we wanted that accountability. And I said, that's, that's awesome. And it's, it's hard during COVID to, to know, you know why people are gone and, and why they're missing. You don't have that normal connection point. But I encourage you, that don't become an island. God didn't create us to walk through this life alone. Join a D group if you can. Find a way to stay connected to God's people. If you don't feel comfortable coming to the service, find a way to engage with people throughout the week so you can continue to walk this life and not run away from God's people. Not run away from His commands. Not run away from His mission. Not run away from His relationship. 
In Romans 7, Paul is talking about the struggle that all of us find ourselves in. He says, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is God that delivers us from these temptations. It is God who pursues us as we run, chases after us as we flee. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Second question, do you care more about your comfort than the million of people who don't know Jesus? Jonah cared more about his plant than the people, his shade than those who are saved. Oh, it can be so easy in our lives to get so caught up in our plant worry about our house, worry about our stuff, and just go through life and have no concern, no prayer, no care for people that don't know Christ. We see it in the life of Jonah, but may it not be about us. May we be people that want to make disciples of all the nations. May we be disciples who make disciples for the glory of the Lord. Third, do you believe God is who He said He is? Jonah said, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Even in Jonah's rebellion, a, a, a boat full of people came to know Yahweh and put their faith and trust in Him. And maybe the greatest revival recorded, 120,000 people turned to Yahweh even in his rebellion. Why? Because God was working. Not because Jonah was a good prophet. He was a bad prophet. But God was working. If you haven't put your trust in this God that is slow to anger, abounding in love, compassionate, today is the day to do it. Today is the day to stop running. If you're running, we have a God who pursues. James Bruckner said this about Jonah. God in His mercy does more than call us back to Himself. Yahweh pursues us as He pursued Jonah. With a storm, sailors' questions, and the great fish of death. This pursuit is our only hope. Apart from it, we are still running from God and from the message of Jonah. Years after years, I've seen people run from God. I've seen students who grew up in my ministry when they get to college age, you know, slowly disengage from church like, and disengage from God's people and then slowly dis- disengage from His commands. And then slowly, next thing you know, they, they really have nothing to do with God and I've seen God pursue them. And sometimes it takes a storm. Sometimes when their life is finally wrecked, they realize that they needed God that whole time. And my prayer is that God doesn't have to use the storm, that you'll turn back to Him today because He's gracious, He's compassionate, He's abounding in love. So often we just run to all these other things that we know don't fill us. We run from the one true God, forgetting His grace and His mercy and His compassion. The Assyrians didn't deserve it, Jonah didn't deserve it, and yet he freely gave it. So today, be like the Ninevites. Cry out to God. Seek repentance. 
Know that God is good, that He's compassionate, that He's abounding in love, and turn in relationship to Him. No matter how far away, you're not too far gone. No matter how far you've run, God is pursuing you yet, and He will continue to pursue you. So surrender. Give your life to Him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, You are so good. And we're so thankful that we can come to You. Lord, as we enter into communion in a moment, we have a chance to repent, to turn from our wicked ways, to to ask for forgiveness, to ask You to move in our hearts. So Lord, we just pray that You'll allow us to take this time to surrender. In Your name we pray. Amen.